0: Let us uh, turn to the Lord in prayer, and then we will open up our scripture as we continue in our series from the book of John. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you are a God who loves us. Father, we thank you that we can stand on your promises. God, we thank you that you are a God who is present with us, that you are not a God who is far off. Father, we thank you for our church body. I thank you for the dedication to giving of time and uh, and tithes that our church gives and prayer for our church. I thank you for each and every one of the people that are at our church. God, I am supremely blessed by each and every one of them. God, I pray that as we continue as a church to love our community, to love our county, that you'll continue to use us as we push forward with the mission and vision that you have given to us. God, I pray that we will be a church that is a refuge, that we will be a church that seeks to restore broken relationships. And Father, I pray that we will be a church that proclaims the gospel. For only that matters in our lives, as we will see the power of the gospel this morning. I pray that we'll continuously remember what you have done for us, and how we can stand upon the promises that you give in your word because of your sacrifice and because of the truth of the gospel. Holy Spirit of the living God, I pray that you will fall fresh upon us this morning, that your word will pierce our hearts, that we will allow your spirit to speak the truth of the the living word to our hearts this morning, and that you'll use my mouth to proclaim your truth in your name. Amen. Amen. As you can clearly tell, the, the theme of today is promises. Promises that God gives to us and, you know, the promises of victory. And I'll explain that in a moment. But I want you to think really quickly about promises that you have made or that you make often in your life. How often do you hold true to those promises? When when you look at all the promises you've made to God and to others. How solid have you been in making sure those promises came to fruition, right? Not all of us keep our promises all the time. I I know that I don't. But in my family, my daughter Amelia and I, we have come up with a, a, a practice of promise that we have that's kind of like the Old Testament promises. It's a covenant, right? Now, some of you are thinking, what kind of pastor are you that cuts animals in half like the Old Testament, We don't cut animals in half, all right? (laughs) We like to call it our pinky dinky promise. And here's how it goes. We wrap our pinkies around one another and we put our thumb in our mouth and we bite and we say, "I pinky dinky promise, right? Has any of you guys done something silly with your kids like that, right? Well, it has become like our family covenant-making procedure. If we're going to make a promise, we are going to be legit and say, this is not going to be broken. And in our house so far, We've never, ever, any of us, broken a pinky-dinky promise. Now, why do I share that? Well, because God is a covenant-making God, and the promises of God are the ultimate pinky-dinky promises. They are the ultimate pinky-dinky promises. He will never break His promises. He never has broken His promises. He is a covenant-making God, and He holds true to his promises. He's not as whimsical as us as humans, where we don't necessarily hold true to our promises 100% of the time. But God's promises are the ultimate pinky-dinky promise. He will keep those promises, and he promises that he will keep those promises. He is a covenant-making God. And in these passages, as we're going to look, we're going to see that the main promise that that Jesus promises to the disciples and then to us is the promise of victory. Where he promises in the end of verse 33 that he will overcome the world. And as we look at that end promise, where he has made specific promises also throughout this entire dialogue slash monologue that he's had with his disciples And so we're going to look at the promises that Jesus makes to his disciples as he's ending his monologue, as he's coming to the the high priestly prayer that he's going to pray for the disciples and for you and for me. He gives promises of victory. So the question that we're going to seek to answer today is what are the promises of victory? What are the promises that Jesus makes to his disciples? And what are the promises that Jesus makes to us If you read uh, in John chapter 16 with me, we're going to be looking at John chapter 16, verses 16 through 33. And Jesus is wrapping up his monologue with his disciples in this moment. Jesus says this, John 16, starting in verse 16, a little while and you will see me no longer. And again, a little while and you will see me. So some of his disciples said to one another, What is this that he says to us a little while and you will not see me? And again, a little while and you'll see me. And because I'm going to the Father. So they were saying, What does he mean by a little while? We do not know what he's talking about. Jesus knew that they wanted to ask him what they wanted to ask him. So he said to them, Is this what you are asking yourselves? What I mean by saying a little while and you will not see me? And again, a little while and you will see me. Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. That in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Wow, that is packed full of promises. As we open up this conversation, what are the promises of victory? We need to remember that the promises that Jesus makes in this passage are only possible because of his victory. He closes it out by saying, I have overcome the world. Take heart. And so you know that what I've said is true. Because when it happens, you will understand the fullness of what I'm talking about. And as we look at this passage, the first promise that we can see is the promise of his presence. Jesus gives them the promise of his presence. He has this discussion with his disciples that gets them really confused. He's like, in a little while you won't see me, but then again, in a little while you're going to see me. He's confusing them. They sit there and say, what in the world is Jesus talking about? Have you ever looked at the scripture and said, what in the world is God talking about? I have. (laughs) I come to the scriptures not always knowing exactly what's going on, and I need the Holy Spirit to enlighten me. But here the disciples are confused, and Jesus recognizes their confusion. And he asks them a question. Are you asking why this is? Are you trying to understand what I mean by a little while? And obviously they're, they're, you know, very sheepish, and they say yes. And one of the favorite parts of this passage that I see is when they're like, Oh, we get it now! And Jesus is like, No, you don't. Here he's promising his presence. He's saying, for a little while I'll be gone, but then you will see me a little while. Now, obviously, as we look at this in retrospect, we're saying, okay, Jesus is talking about his death a little while, you won't see me. And then he's talking about his resurrection, and in a little while you will see me again. But we have to take this whole narrative in context. Jesus, in verse 7, not too long ago, said, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And again, in verses 13 through 14, When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. In the context, Jesus is telling them, listen, I will go away. And when they see him die, they recognize that's what he means. And then when they see him raised again, they say, ah, this is us seeing him again. He is now present with us. But the promise of his presence is not just for that moment for those disciples at the resurrection, for those 40 days. The promise of his presence is also for you and for me. Because we have the presence of the living God by the Holy Spirit, through the Holy Spirit. And when we look in the context of this, because Jesus has died, because Jesus has risen again, you and I have access to the very presence of the living God. It is a promise It is signed, sealed, delivered, done. He has come. The Holy Spirit is within us. Because the promise of the Spirit is the promise of His presence. The promise of the Spirit is the promise of His presence. We see this as Jesus talks about gathering together as believers. Where two or more are gathered, there I am with you. A promise of His presence. He is saying this over and over and over again throughout Scripture that he promises that we will not be left as orphans. We're not left to wander on our own. We have the presence of the living God in our lives. And it is a promise that you and I sometimes neglect to remember. Because Jesus' victory, we have the promise of the Holy Spirit. The next thing that we can see that Jesus promises his disciples is the promise of powerful joy. When Jesus is seen no more by his disciples, the world will rejoice. The world did rejoice. There was cheering at the death of Jesus. And he says to them, you guys will have sorrow Because when they recognize the death of their Savior, everything that they had put their eggs in one basket for is now gone in in their minds. I mean, that's a depressing moment where you look at the last three years of your life and you see it all crumble before you and say, what have I done? I've wasted everything. But he says, I won't leave you there. You won't be stuck in your sorrow because joy will come. And he gives a very interesting illustration of how to explain this, utilizing childbirth. It's used elsewhere in the scripture, by the way. In Isaiah 26, 16 through 23, we see this idea of a woman giving birth and the pains that happen, but the joy that comes when the baby is there. Now, I'm not a woman, and I'm not going to pretend that I understand what that really means, but I do know that when my babies are born, I have joy. I don't feel the anguish and the pain. I have to watch my wife go through that. But then there's this excited smile as she holds the baby. Right, This baby just caused all kinds of pain. But when you rest with the baby in your arms, there's joy. What is Jesus saying to the disciples? He's saying that your joy will be birthed out of pain. Your joy will be birthed out of suffering. Listen, joy and suffering are on a continuum. If we don't understand suffering, we won't understand joy. Do you understand that? I know that's a really weird thought, but we can't understand joy if we don't understand sorrow. And we can't understand the depths of sorrow if we don't understand joy. And one of the things that the church doesn't often talk about is the idea of sorrow and grief. But here, Jesus is telling his disciples, it is okay to grieve. And when you live in the fullness of that grief, when you see me again, you will have supreme joy. Because you'll look and say, we never expected this. Holy cow, look at what just happened. This is incredible. This is amazing. Our joy is now complete because we saw through the sorrow and the pain and the anguish. But then when Jesus wins, man, we understand Joy. There is a promise of joy. Kossenberger says it like this, Jesus' primary point for the disciples is that their joy cannot come without being preceded by grief. Jesus has some interesting paradoxes in the Bible. Here are a couple. That we will have growth in our lives through loss. That we will gain by losing. And that we will have joy from grief. These are really difficult things to try and wrap our minds around. How can one be the other? How is that going to birth this? It doesn't make much sense. But Jesus also in Matthew 5, he said, Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. The importance of grief is vital to understand as believers. Because Jesus doesn't say, hey, when I'm gone for a little while, just suck it up and be okay with it. No, he says, you know what? You guys are going to have deep sorrow. It's going to be painful, and you're going to scatter away from me. He's telling them everything that's going to happen. But what's interesting is he doesn't rebuke them for their sorrow that's going to come. He doesn't say, don't be sorrowful when this happens. He says, you will have sorrow. In the church, we have to understand that grieving is okay, it is okay to grieve. We're not saying that God is not strong enough to get through our pain. What we're saying is I need to reside in my pain and mourn so that Christ can bring me out. Because if we have pain and we stuff it down and we avoid it and we push it away, we'll never properly mourn the pain that is in our lives. And it will never go away. The only way you and I can receive comfort from the pain of loss is through mourning. We've got to rearrange our theology, because in the American church, we have a terrible theology of suffering, a terrible theology of suffering. You've heard me say before that in our our society, moralistic, therapeutic deism reigns, and part of that is that my relationship with Jesus should make me feel good all the time. Well, here Jesus is like, it's not going to feel good for a while, and that's normal, But there's joy that comes. One of the, uh, I remember an older church lady when I was a kid, she used to have this phrase, you know how when when you're in pain, you say the joy comes in the morning. Well, she said, instead of morning as in when the sun rises, she said joy comes in the morning, M-O-U-R-N-I-N-G. And as a little kid, I'm like, oh, you spelled it wrong. But now I get it. Now I get it, joy does come in the morning. Jesus promises comfort when we properly grieve. And the reason why I think so many people walk around with their sorrows and their pain is because they don't recognize the promise of joy, but the joy comes living in through the sorrow and allowing Jesus to comfort us and take us out. That is a powerful promise that comes with the victory of the cross. Another promise that we see Jesus giving his disciples is the promise of personal prayer. The promise of personal prayer. He says, you know what? You're no longer going to ask me and I'm no longer going to go to the Father on your behalf because the Father loves you. The Father loves you. Now listen, this could be one of those little things that we miss very easily in this passage. But what Jesus is saying is like, hey, when the victory happens, when the end comes and I have died and rose again, when you see me again for a little while, things are going to change in your prayer life. No longer are you going to have to look at me in person and ask me stuff and then I ask the Father and then give you the answer. You have a direct line to the Father. If that doesn't jazz you up, I don't know what will. Because when Jesus died, the the curtain was torn. We now had access to the presence of God. And because we have access to the presence of God, you and I have access to personal prayer with the living, breathing, loving God. There's a commentator, his name's Fredrickson, and and he said this. He said, Jesus' atoning death will revolutionize the praying of the disciples. It will revolutionize the praying of the disciples and I think sometimes as Christians we don't really fully live into the promise of personal prayer. I think we sometimes come and we ask God all of our requests and we say, okay, God, do this for me, do this for me. Thank you for what you've done. But we don't recognize that we have a personal connection in prayer to the living God, that we can pour out all of our heart, that we can pour out everything that we are, and that we can hear the voice of the living God in prayer because it is a personal relationship with God. Man, that excites me. God is not far off. He is right near with us. God cares about your life. God cares about your grief. God cares about your pain. God cares about your joy. God cares about everything that's going on within you. And he desires for you to know him and be known by him. The power and the promise of personal prayer. Now the disciples, it kind of just went (whistles) over their heads. They were like, "Why, why can't we ask you questions anymore? That doesn't make any sense, Jesus, because if you're coming back in a little while, you could still answer all our questions. He's like, Nope, I'm not answering any more of your questions, (laughs) because you can go directly to the Father. Because I've been giving you the answers of the Father. Now you can have your own relationship with Him. My friends, you and I, we are to be a praying people. We are to be a praying people. If we expect to see God move in our lives, we've got to have a deeper, intimate relationship with Him. If we want to see transformation in our lives, we've got to spend time in personal prayer. If we want to push back the enemy's territory, we've got to go and pray where the enemy's territory is and ask the presence of God to fall in that area. Taking back the ground that the enemy has won is bringing the presence of God that is within you and me, the light that you and I have into the dark places. This is why we emphasized missions so much last month, because you and I are the light to this world. And we need to bring that light, and our light can shine brighter and brighter and brighter the more we spend time in prayer with God. I think another theology that we miss, the doctrine of prayer in the Western church is so weak. It's just simplistic. We don't recognize the deep relational reality of prayer. In the CMA, one of our core values is this. Prayer is the primary work of God's people. That's part of our denominational stance. One of our core values because when we are going to be changed, if we're going to move the world, it's got to be started on our knees. One of my favorite things about A.W. Tozer, a guy that I just I think just knew the Holy Spirit, knew God deeply, and was used by God tremendously. One of the things he did is he had what he called his praying pants. I know that sounds weird. He didn't want to get his nice slacks all dirty and messed up, so he had a pair of jeans that he would put on, and he would call them his praying pants. And he said to his, his uh, secretary, I'm putting on my praying pants. Leave me alone. And he would go in his office and be on his knees, and he had to go after pair after pair after pair of praying pants because he kept getting holes in them, which means the guy was on his knees. Church, let's put our praying pants on. I'm serious. We need to be on our knees for our community, on our knees for our county, on our knees for our family, on our knees for our church, on our knees for our mission. I believe God wants to do incredible things, more things and more things in and through our church to be a bright light on a hill. Last annual meeting in my report, I said this, that I believe that God wants us to be a blazing fire on this hill. That we can be seen all throughout Indiana, not to glorify ourselves, but to draw people to a deep and real relationship with the living God. Because we live in a dying world around us that does not understand this reality of a relationship with God. It's all about do's and don'ts in our Western culture. There's way more. There's way more. We have the promise of personal prayer. Warren Wiersbe reminds us, The purpose of Bible study and prayer is not to simply to understand profound truths or share our requests But the purpose is to know the Father better. To know the Father better. The next thing that we see, the other promise that we can see that Jesus gives to his disciples is the promise of his provision. The promise of his provision. Jesus says, in that day, you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now, you have asked nothing in my name. Ask." and you will receive that your joy may be full we have a promise of provision now sometimes in our in our western thinking we say okay you know what? I'm just going to tack on in Jesus name to every request I have and it's going to work lord give me a Porsche in Jesus name <laughs> oh, lord i need a new whatever it might be in Jesus name lord I would like a bigger house in Jesus' name. And we use it as like this little, oh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get something. It's like a dime getting thrown into a fountain and just, whoo, I'm wishing for it in Jesus' name. But that's not what Jesus is talking about. When we pray in Jesus' name, we are saying, I am going to align my will with the will of Jesus. And so when I pray in Jesus' name, when I pray the will of Jesus in my life, it's going to happen in Jesus' name. It is not a a wishing well that we get everything that we want. That's not the type of request that Jesus is talking about. It is aligning our heart with the will of God. A, A commentator named Stott, he says it best. He says, on the basis of Jesus' name, which means a trusting reliance on His sacrifice to cover their, our unworthiness, and a sincere commitment to seek only those things which would accord with His glory. Jesus desires to be glorified in and through you. The Holy Spirit's primary purpose in our lives is to glorify Jesus. And so when we pray in Jesus' name to glorify Jesus himself, saying, I want to use this to glorify you. I want to glorify Jesus. When you get on your knees and you say, Lord, I want to glorify you, he's going to answer that that request. When you say, Lord, I want to be aligned with your will, tell me where to go and what to do, he is going to answer that request because we're aligning our heart with him. It is the promise of provision. We're also going to see the promise of provision that Christ is going to give us everything that we need because of the song we sang, Christ is enough. Every time we sing that song, I have to ask myself and ask us, is Christ enough? Are there other things that you wish you had besides Christ? Are there more things or more stuff or more people or more whatever that Christ is not enough in your life? We see that Christ offers the promise of provision. The Lord is our provider, and we must rely upon his provision. This is faith-filled praying, asking the Lord, you know what, Lord? Increase the number of people who come to Jesus in our county through our church. I mean, that's a... That's a prayer request that Jesus is going to answer. Whether or not they come to our church doesn't matter. The point is that we pray faith-filled, believing prayers that God will use us to bring other people to Jesus. He is the provider. Look throughout the scriptures. We see that Abraham, when he was going to sacrifice his son, Jesus was an example of this. Later on, but God provided a ram in the thicket for sacrifice. It was an image of Jesus being provided for you and for me. The provision of the Lord to cover over, wash away, expunge our sins completely. We have the provision of the Lord to be cleansed. The Lord is our provider. Let's lean into him. Let's not try and be our own provider. Lean into him. We've seen stories of people with faith as they pray and they ask the Lord to provide their needs. The Lord shows up. I believe the Lord will provide our needs if we're on our knees and we're asking Him and we're pursuing what His will is for our lives, aligning ourselves in Jesus' name. Here's another one that's not necessarily a fun promise. And you can see on this, there's many different passages of Scripture that show this to us. But it's the promise of provisional pain. How about that? (laughs) I promise that you're going to have pain. That's not one of those promises that we're lining up for. Woo! That's the greatest promise I've ever been given! But Jesus promises provisional pain. Look at verse 33. I'll just read the whole verse because I think it's an imperative part of this promise. And I have said these things to you that in me you have peace you may have peace that's the nice one but in the world you will have tribulation in the world you will have pain Like I said before, we have a poor theology of pain. Here, Jesus is promising the reality that you and I will experience tribulation. You and I will experience pain in this life because as humans, we're broken. And I don't know if you've ever had this experience, but broken people bring hurt to other people. Or as one of my mentors likes to say, hurt people hurt people. We're going to have pain in this world, All of creation was broken because of sin. All of creation groans for the return of Christ. That's what tornadoes and earthquakes and hurricanes are all about. That is the earth groaning for restoration. It is the earth groaning for Christ to return. We don't always think of it that way, but creation, I don't know if you recognize this, we weren't meant to have that type of problem in our world. That happened because of sin. And it persists because of sin. We are going to experience pain in this world. The Christian life doesn't mean I accept Jesus and then everything gets fluffy-duffy and nice and rainbowy with unicorns everywhere. Unicorns aren't real, by the way. That type of life is not real because we all experience pain. There's a promise of provisional pain, and I use provisional because it won't last. Because of what Christ said at the end of verse 33, where he said, But take heart, I have overcome the world. The pain won't last. No matter what you're going through, the pain won't last. The disciples were about to experience the scariest time of their entire life. As Jesus is making this promise, he knows in a couple of hours they're all going to leave terrified because he's going to get arrested, he's going to get beaten, and he's going to die the worst death possible. And they're all going to be thinking, that's going to be next. That's going to be me. I'm going to be up on deck. I need to run away. I need to not experience that type of pain. And so they try to avoid and run away from pain. But Jesus promised them, you're going to experience this pain. How could he say that? How can he say that, that it's only provisional, that it's not going to be forever? And I believe that the answer is because Jesus also gives the promise of his peace. Despite everything that was about to come crashing down around the disciples, Jesus says, in me you may have peace. In him we may have peace. Listen, the world around you might be tumultuous with painful, sorrowful, deep, wounding things that you just can't see the end of that you feel like I can't get out of this spiral of pain. But Jesus makes a promise for you and for me that if we are in him, we can have peace. No matter what is going on around you, no matter the pain and the sorrow, in him we can have peace. If you go back to John 15, where Jesus tells his disciples, abide in me and I will abide in you. When we abide in Christ, when we are in Him, that is where our peace will come from. And here's another bold statement. If we are not in Jesus, we will not know the peace that He has for us. He is promising us peace. And remember, if we have this idea that this is the ultimate pinky-dinky promise, He's not going to break it. He will bring peace to you and to me. Just like he was telling the disciples, they were about to experience this crazy day, this crazy evening. He said, Listen, if you remain in me, you you will have peace. It will come. That's a powerful promise. Because I've experienced a lot of pain in my life, I've experienced a lot of loss, I've experienced a lot of grief. I've seen a lot of people dealing with pain and grief, but I've also seen this promise true time and time and time and time again, that when we rest in Him, we can have peace. That doesn't mean that things stop swirling around us. That doesn't mean that our pain is gone. That doesn't mean that everything is made perfect and right, because it won't be made perfect and right fully until we get to heaven. But what it does mean is that even in the midst of all of it, we can have peace. That's hard to believe sometimes. But Jesus promises it to us and to his disciples. The next promise that we can see, which wraps up all of these promises, is the promise of victory. The promise of victory. Jesus said, take heart, for I have overcome the world. That's a really bold statement. And the Greek word for take heart is tharseo. And what it means is to be courageous. I like courageous better than take heart, because courageous for me has some type of action to it. When we have the promise of victory, you and I can be courageous when we battle the enemy because the enemy wants to annihilate us as believers because he doesn't want us to spread the gospel. He doesn't want us to share the good news of Christ. He doesn't want us to be the light in our communities. He doesn't want that. But Jesus says, be courageous because I have overcome the world. I've already won. Satan, honestly, when we don't give him any ground in our lives, he has no power over us the only power the enemy has over us is the power that we give him you need to recognize that if the enemy is in your life it's because you said welcome on in if there are things that are going on around you that you know you're being demonized or that the enemy is just going after you and annihilating your mind and your thoughts and your heart and you're saying okay i give you ground i give you access to these areas of my life But the promise of the gospel is that Jesus has already won, and when we stand on the promises of God, we can be courageous saying, you know what? Satan, you have no power over my life because Jesus has already defeated you. Some people say, well, why does the enemy still have power in the world? Well, if you ever cut a chicken's head off, it can still run around for a while. Right now, this is the headless chicken of Satan running around in our world. Because then the chicken's going to die and the chicken's going to get thrown into hell and the victory will be complete. Amen. Jesus has already won, He has the victory. We have the promise of victory and all of these other promises will come true and are coming true because of his victory. Paul reminds us in 1 Corinthians 15, 57, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen? He gives us the victory. You can't do it in and of your own power. That's why Jesus promises the Holy Spirit to empower us. You can't do it. It's not your victory, it's His. And we need to rest in Him and find that victory in our lives. So, no matter what's going on in your life, no matter what the enemy has been doing to you, in you, attacking you, you can win. Don't allow Him access. Shut down those areas that he has been getting access to in your life and declare in Jesus' name that you have the victory because he died. We can be courageous. Do not be afraid. Take heart, for we've won. So I challenge you to resolve yourself, to hold on to these promises. And as that song says, stand on the promises of God. Stand on them. Rely upon them. Because they're true. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you that you have given us so many promises in Scripture that we can know without a doubt that you will make them come true, that they will happen because you have already won. Father, I pray that we'll take that truth to heart. And that we will stand on the promises that you give to us. In your name, amen.